It's encouraging to be with you guys today. Um, wow, uh, just there's been a little bit of a pause since worship, but what a great time of worship we experienced together. It's so, so awesome to be back with you whenever I'm with you to experience worship. And that only happens when you have skillful and anointed worship leaders. And so Becky and worship team, thank you. So awesome. Yeah, you... So and it, it really is only able to happen when the, the church itself has a culture of worship. And so thank you for being people who I believe many of you are not just coming here to get church done and over with, but you have cultivated a relationship with Jesus throughout the week. And so thank you for being 24-7 Christians and not just Sunday Christians. You can feel it in this place as a result of your pursuit of God. Um, during the week, you know, this has been the first time. This is the first time that I've been back to CFCF since Jeff stepped down as pastor and the Bianchi's moved to San Diego. And I wanted to thank you, um, as a friend of Jeff, uh, for your gracious um, and extravagant love for them. They truly felt it. They were honored and blessed in the way that you have loved them. And your generous financial support has allowed them to have the time to pray, to be refreshed, to rest, and to discern the right next steps of God. I had a chance to talk to Jeff this weekend, catch up with him, and uh, they are settled into their house um, uh, off the coast of San Diego, and they've gotten into a rhythm. Their kids are in school, a rhythm of morning and night, being able to walk, take walks together and pray and talk and discuss the things of God and in an environment that's not full of pressure. And he said, you know, I feel like we're finally getting um, into a really good rhythm. And so thank you, church, for allowing that and making that possible for them. You know, 17 years ago, Laura and I and our two um, daughters at that time moved to Boston with a team of four singles in one young family to um, say yes to a dream that God had put in our heart to see a church established here that would plant churches and send people to the four corners of the world. And I would have never thought that 18 or 17 years later I'd be standing here today. You know, in life, you take one step at a time and trust that each step that you're taking is in line with God and how he's leading you. You step by faith. And for us, most of those steps have found firm footing, but sometimes you wonder if you've made the right decision, sometimes you don't make the right decision, and you step back and you evaluate what went wrong. But even in those times in your life, you trust that God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. You know, the scripture tells us that... that um, our faith, not our right steps, but our faith is credited to us as righteousness. So I can say that every big move we've made as a church planning movement here in Boston and as a family has been by faith in a big God who loves us. However, there are times when I look back and wonder about the execution of those big decisions. And five years ago is one of those times. I and those with me have no doubt about the call that God placed in our lives to plant the River Church, to plant ACC Tempe, and to send out a full team to Indonesia. 
excuse me, I lost my place here. Um, this was a call. This was a call for us as a movement, and many um, along the way have thanked us for putting our money where our mouth is and continuing to reach new communities with the gospel. And we'll continue to do that and continue to do many more church plants and many more adventures along the way as CFI. But the launch of these three entities five years ago, these three new churches within one year, cost us as a movement more than we would realize. And it was much more emotional and had much more of a relational toll on us than we could have imagined. Having two of your three elders, two of your senior pastors transition out with a strong leadership team and all of those, on all those teams and a bunch of strong families was a deep sacrifice. It was a deep loss for CFCF. And as a church, you did it with joy. You did it with faith. You did it with generosity. You did it as a mother church does. You gave to your children sacrificially. You gave people. You gave finances. You gave your service, your time. You gave your prayer. You lived by faith and trust in God. You were motivated by love. And you were motivated, motivated by love for the lost, and you wanted to see the church be the answer. Thank you. But you also had needs of your own. And as the leader of the movement standing before you, I was engrossed in planning a church myself and overseeing a movement, and you needed me to be more present and available along the way than I was able. You needed to see and feel my leadership and my support more than you did. And for that, I want you to know I'm truly sorry. And when I look back, even though the decision and process to what, for what we did was prayed through and it was affirmed by those around us, I do think that we made some mistakes. And we could have done things better. Did we see it then? No. Did we see it along the way? We started to. Do we see it now? Absolutely. So for those of you in the room today that have walked this journey for the last five years, and for many of you way, way longer than five years, thank you. Thank you for persevering. Thank you for believing in the church, and specifically this church. And thank you for staying committed through the ups and downs. And for those of you who haven't been around since then, who are in the room and are wondering what I'm even talking about, I want to let you in on what some around you are journeying through so that you can be sensitive and so each of you can understand the journey ahead. You are truly a family to one another. I see it, I feel it, I experience it when I'm with you, but when I'm away from you, and I'm, I'm humbled to be able to continue to walk with you as a pastor and a friend, so thank you. I do believe that the days ahead are bright for CFCF and for CFI. I can feel it in the room. Can you feel it in the room? I feel it. I see it. You have a great staff. You're being overseen by a wonderful group of people called the Transition Oversight Team, and the staff on a day-to-day basis is being overseen greatly by Mark Buckner. Your TOT, your Transition Oversight Team members, and could you stand up for me just a second because I want people to be able to see you. Michael Ellis, John Clark, Lori Good, Amy Miller, Justin Coxon, 
Kendra Aguilar, Mark Buckner, they have worked and will continue to work tirelessly through this transition to serve you above and beyond the call of duty. Can we give them a hand and thank them for that? And I can say in sitting on that team that they and I have great confidence that CFCF is heading towards an awesome future. And you're the main reason for that. This church is people and that you are here and that you remain and that you come filled with worship and filled with praise and your eyes are looking outward and you're dreaming dreams for this community and you are stirred to move on with God. That's where our bright future is remains. So thank you. Thanks for being the ones who are living by faith, who are living with compassion, for standing with us during this time. I appreciate it, and I'm blessed. Amen. Can I preach a sermon as well? When I was a kid, my dad had a friend named Bill, and Bill was what I think we would still call a survivalist which means that during the Cold War, he thought that a nuclear bomb was going to land on our community at any minute, and we needed to be prepared. And so in the mountains of New Mexico, by the way, we were already a long way away from pretty much anybody as it was. He found a mountain that was a little farther away from nowhere, and he bought land, and he commenced in plowing the land, creating ponds of water for drinking and sewage, digging out caves for homes and storage of food to wait out the apocalypse. As an eight-year-old who would walk through the mountains of New Mexico and be able to visit Bill's land, I just thought it was cool. A really awesome pond in the middle of nowhere. When I'd ride horseback through the mountains, I thought it was awesome to race my horse into the cavern of the pirates. I had all kinds of visions and dreams about what was fun and awesome about that mountain. Bill was scared to death. I have to admit, if you've heard my story, that I too had a little bit of fear about nuclear disaster. And so the bunker was somewhat um, comforting to know that maybe if anything happened, we had a place to escape. Anybody want a bunker? Forget about nuclear war for a second, although it's hard sometimes, even with what's going on with North Korea and Things are going on around the world. But forget about nuclear war. When I became a parent, I just wanted to protect my kids from humans. All of the parents laugh a little bit nervously. The seduction of the sexual culture around us, the violence of the video game culture, the anti-authority culture, the you don't really believe in God, do you, culture, anger at times. Escape, most of the time, flooded my mind. How do I protect my family and myself from this culture that is creeping in and trying to war against my values? I'm just being honest. Does anybody feel the way I did? You don't have to raise your hand, incriminate yourself. Do we feel tempted to have these responses? Let's, let's dial it in a little bit closer to home for everybody. Almost daily, another bomb goes off. And most of the time, it's one between one ethnic or religious zealot trying to kill another. Conflict with faith centered 
around views about Jesus and our faith are the norm. Persecution and anger directed towards the church based on biblical values that the church holds in response to sexual issues or life in the womb or evangelism in the workplace, school or street. We feel attacked for who we are and what we believe at times. And even more subtle than that is a culture shaping that's going on that we don't even feel that influences believers, our faith, our aspect, our outlook on life, encourages us to adopt ways that are enlightened by the world on some of these same issues. We watch movies, we listen to music, we sit in classrooms, we hang out with friend groups, work groups that have a very different worldview at times than you and I. How can you be so outdated? How can you be so archaic? How can you be so bigoted? How can you be so confused? How can you be so, come on, you're so weak. Have a backbone. We leave these conversations, these lectures, these forms of entertainment confused sometimes and at best, at confused at, at times at best, but sometimes very condemned. This is not Kansas anymore, Dorothy, is how we feel at times. And so as a result, we either feel the need to hunker down, build a bunker, or separate ourselves from society, move away, disengage, or we rise up and we blog, we tweet, we rage, we talk with judgment and hostility towards the culture. Either way, we marginalize ourselves from society by escape or ridicule or fighting in hope for the best until Jesus returns. Oh, and he can't come soon enough, can he? If we could only survive. You find yourself a little bit like Bill Bradshaw right now? Wondering how to survive? But what is really in God's heart? What does God really think? Is this how God sees things? Have you asked the question if he sees it this way? Does he agree with our moralistic high ground or our approach? Does he agree with the escape mentality, the bunker mentality? He definitely defines clearly for us that we are to live moral lives. He definitely urges us to, to not only live holy, but to teach it. He also tells us at times that we are to flee or to escape temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.10 or 2 Timothy 2.2. But more often than that, he calls us to stand and season the meat of this world with his love and truth, doesn't he? He asks us to shed light in the darkness. He asks us to turn the other cheek when we are hit. Actually, he encourages us to reveal Jesus, who should be living in each one of us. He wants us to thrive instead of survive. Yeah, things are bad. Yes, there's an assault on God's values. Yes, there's an assault on his truth. Yes, there's an assault on his church. This has been going on since the beginning of time. But if we believe in God, we know he's not rattled. He's not fretting. Come on. He's the one who's overcome the world. He's the one who is victorious. He's not sitting there planning for a bunker. He's planning for a celebration. And are we apart? If we trust in him... Don't we believe that we are overcomers too? Do you believe? (laughs) I got one amen. 
I got a lot of people going, oh, man, I don't know. Well, that brings us to our series that we're starting. You are about to begin a series in Daniel. And we're going to entitle this series, Thriving in Babylon. Thriving in Babylon. We're not just surviving, but we're thriving in the same way that we read in these first six chapters of Daniel. Let's get a little history about Daniel. You can bring out your Bibles. You can start looking. You can look at your commentaries. I know you come with a lot of those. Open up your cell phone. Look at your favorite author. Let's exegete this thing. The history... The history of this, this book or the time period of these, this people is during or it's at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity um, that will last 70 years. In Israel, uh, the central characters in this captivity have been in a place of rebellion towards God for years. They would not repent of their evil ways after multiple warnings um, by God through His prophets. And so God declared once and for all, that they would be punished by being overtaken and removed from the land and exiled to a foreign nation under a foreign rule. So read with me in verses 1 through 2. 1 and 2. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings of that time, king of the Babylonian empire that was extensive in its geography and um, powerful in its authority. It was a crushing, brutal empire. Babylon, the capital, was on the Euphrates River. It's, it's about 50 miles south of present-day Baghdad, if you kind of want to get the geography in your mind, for those of you who have, who have maps in your mind. It was a, it was a, it was a land of, of power, but it was also a land of culture. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the ancient marvels of the ancient world. Babylon also, within the, text of, within the context of Scripture, even at that time, but also in future texts, was known as a wicked place, as a place rebellious towards God. You'll read about it as we look at these next chapters over the next few weeks. In, in the New Testament, Babylon was a symbol of Wicked Rome in the place where wickedness and decadence prevailed. It was a place that promoted wickedness, it promoted decadence, and it did not promote a dependence on the living God. Sound like any place familiar to you? Babylon for us today represents this world. It represents what you and I might be living in. It could be Boston. If you're a visitor, it could be your own hometown. It's not one specific location. But it represents anything that promotes itself contrary to the ways and the character and the faith that we possess in the living God. Jerusalem, 605 B.C., came under siege by Nebuchadnezzar. And this began the exile. Some things from the, the temple were um, ex, um, taken, as well as all of the young men, young women, all of those of prominence, of potential that represented the culture, were taken to Babylon. 598, Nebuchadnezzar comes back again, deposes King Jehoiakim, and sacks Jerusalem again. And then a third time, in 588, he sieges Jerusalem, destroys it, takes all of the remaining religious articles out of the temple, and completely destroys Jerusalem. 
to the Babylonians by 588 B.C., their God had won. And God allowed it. God allowed his people to be placed in this wicked and decadent place. Why? We look in Scripture, God declares to us that sometimes he brings judgment to his people so that it would lead them to repentance. So that what they confess by mouth would actually be lived by their life. Ever been around a hypocrite? Ever been around somebody who would say, hey, here's our temple and here's our God and he's awesome. I just don't worship or live for him, but he's great. And that's who I am. I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in Yahweh. But God said, you're not a believer in Yahweh. You worship me with your lips, but your deeds are like filthy rags. Sometimes he allows this kind of judgment to happen to reveal his glory in an unbelieving land, to take what the enemy meant for harm and to turn it into good like he did with Joseph in the land of Egypt. And to those who would know this story of Daniel in its time, who actually knew the real-time events, who heard it told around the dinner table as the years progressed, this story of, that we're going to learn about of Daniel, Daniel Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, these stories would be encouragement to those who were very, very despondent in their faith. They needed to have encouragement because everything their faith had been built on, the four pillars of divine promise that undergirded their confidence in God had been challenged or destroyed. Four, those four things being God's covenant to them of protection and blessing. He's no longer protecting them. They had been captured, uh, captured by their enemy. That the land was their inheritance. They were removed from the very promised land that they'd been given by God. That the Davidic uh, kingship would remain. Their kings had been deposed and they were no longer under the authority of God's divine kingship. And that the presence of God in His temple where they would worship would be a continual presence and a continual place of worship. And they were no longer allowed to worship in the temple where God resided. They had to be asking questions. Where were you, God? Where are you, God? What are you doing, God? Are you ever going to restore us again? Have you ever asked that question? You ask those questions, Lord, what are you up to? What are you up to in my life? What are you up to in this city, this, this world? Who's going to live for you? Who's going to shine for you? Where are the revivals? Where's the next generation? Where is the church? When is the church going to rise up? When is this, this culture going to change and reflect your glory? Do we ask those questions? They were asking those questions. And these young men were the storyline of hope for them. Look on. In verses 3 through 5, these young men were seen as young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for learning. They were to be taught the literature and the ways of the Babylonians. They were to eat the food of the king. They were to be trained for three years. And after these three years, it was going to be assumed that after this indoctrination, this assimilation, they would be the young and brightest new recruits of the Babylonian Empire. They would see what a great honor it was for them to be alive and not killed and to be able to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And then, after they were conscripted, they renamed them. Look with me in verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all of the tribe of Judah, the chief of the staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar, 
Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Part of the assimilation in these cultures was not only to conscript people, to indoctrinate them, sometimes to kill people, to instill fear or reverence, whatever it took. But oftentimes with the younger recruits, they would rename them to change their identity. Daniel's name, Daniel means God is my judge. Belshazzar means Bel, the supreme God of Babylon, protects my life. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious, was renamed Shadrach. I am fearful of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, who is God, was renamed Meshach, who is Aku. Azariah, Yahweh has helped, was called Abednego, servant of the shining one, Neg. Think about your name being changed to be a declaration of worship to a foreign god that you don't believe in. And every time King Nebuchadnezzar or somebody called you out, they were calling out uh, a rebuke of your former name in your former God. Or so they desired. But these teenagers, and we assume or understand from history that these men were young men, teenage of age. In the eyes of Babylon, they were the best of the best and they were worth being assimilated. They were good looking, they had muscles, they were healthy, they were book knowledge wise, they had good judgment. This sounds like our society, doesn't it? This sounds like what we put our confidence in. Good looks, muscles, degrees. But it's not the highest qualities that God is looking for, is it? David had... One of these, it said he was handsome, but he was also a shepherd, which was a dis- not a really high honor in his culture. But he had a heart after God. Gideon was a weak, bumbling, scaredy cat, but he had one redeeming quality. He was willing to step out in faith when God asked him to. The apostles, it says, were unschooled, ordinary men. And yet... They started a church to change the world. And Jesus himself, it said in Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty or beauty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrow and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And yet we know that Jesus in all of his unworldly charm, had the backing of God and therefore changed history itself. Nebuchadnezzar was saying, live my way and thrive. But Daniel and these men were resolved not to defile themselves in verses 8 through 11. They assimilated. They were asked to assimilate, assimilate, but they said no. They said, can you test us And can we do it a different way? Verse 12, Please test us for ten days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the ten days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. 
The attendants agreed to Daniel's suggestions and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, these young men looked better than all of the other men. And verse 17 says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. They said no to Nebuchadnezzar. They said yes to their God. They knew from the court attendant that they might be killed, or that, and he might be killed if he allowed them to do this, but they decided early on in their journey, we're going to follow Jesus. And Jesus honored them, not only by saving their life, but he gave them favor. He gave them what they needed to thrive in their culture. Do you believe in your workplace, in your school, in your setting in life, that if you obey Jesus... God will give you what you need to not only thrive, I mean not only survive, but to thrive. To not only live to escape danger, but to be an influence, to be salt and light, to be light in a dark world, to be a change agent in your location or your environment or culture. Do you believe that? If we do not believe that as a church, then we've lost the battle. If we do not believe that who God is is able to live through us in such a way that He not only protects us and gives us grace to live, but that He also gives us the ability to thrive and to see change happen, then we're sitting in the wrong chair. But if we believe that, wow, watch out. They were determined to remain faithful to God, and they chose to thrive in Babylon with God. And they did. They decided not to be absorbed in the culture, but they decided to draw the line early on and to identify themselves with God. The food of this world was not their food. God was their food. They did it graciously and respectably, but they said, we're standing for our God. Jesus said when he was talking about his disciples, I'm not asking God that you would take them out of this world, but I'm asking that you would keep them safe in this world to keep them safe from the evil one. I'm not removing you from culture. I'm asking that you live in culture and I'll protect you and I will number your days and all the days of your life, you will be an influence that brings about the glory of God. That's who I want to be. Is that who you want to be? They could have revolted against their name change. We have no indication that they did. They could have had a hunger fast and been stubborn. They could have appealed. They could have compromised. They could have plotted to flee or fight. They could have revolted, but they remained faithful within the context of this culture, succeeding to retain their faith in the face of opposition. One choice, one step at a time. They chose to allow their lives to be a witness for God. And because of their commitment, God gave them success. It says at the end of the story that of all the young men that they trained, he could find none as good or great as these four men. And it says not only that, but he found them to be ten times more capable than the wise men. They not only survived, they were exponentially thriving. Ten times better. Ten times different. The best of the world by the glory of God. Can I ask the band to come up? So what do we do with this as we start off Daniel? The world, that which is not of God, 
is calling you to assimilate. Do you feel it? Be like us. Talk like us. Think like us. Be progressive. The Bible is outdated. God doesn't know what's going on. Do what we do. Everyone wants company in what they're doing. The enemy might be lying to you right now and discouraging you with the the reality of your circumstances. You could be feeling like the children of Israel in Babylon. Where is God? Where has he been? Why hasn't he protected me the way that I want him to protect me? Why isn't he blessing me? Where is God's presence? He's calling out to you to say that he's here for you. That you're not abandoned. That you're not alone. He's with you in Babylon. As a matter of fact, his greatest way that he's expressed this reality to you is through the life of Jesus. In the midst of a fallen world, God didn't pull away. He pressed in to be with you. And he is not asking you to be um, alone or isolated or to take a stand in any different way than he took a stand for you. Jesus, when he came, knew that he was going to be persecuted. He knew that he was going to be rejected. He knew that he was going to be scorned. He knew that he was going to be brutally punished. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that he would die for you. We don't even know those things when we stand at the line and decide whether or not we're going to face culture with God or not. We don't know what's going to happen to us, but he knew. And he stood. And he remained. And he died on the cross for you and me, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored that we might be given hope, that He might be able to live in us so that when He says, Sean, you can stand against this culture. You can stand in the midst of it and shine for me and express love in the place of hate, express kindness in the place of rejection, express compassion in the place of need. You can do it, Sean. But God, I don't know if I can because it's so tough. You can do it because I've done it for you. And I'm in you, and I'll be with you. One of the greatest things I I heard recently is oftentimes when we think about our future and we are afraid of what is going to happen, the one thing that we don't do is see Jesus with us in our future. But what if I do this, Sean? My boss or my friend or my... No, I don't know what will happen with your boss or your friend, but you know who will be with you in that moment? Jesus. Would you stand with me? God is calling for you to live different. He's calling for you to stand. He's saying, I'm for you. And he's asking, are you for me? Daniel and his friends said yes. Will you say yes? Will you be different? He's calling you right now, I believe, to, to draw a line in the sand. And he's asking you to stand. And I want to look at college students for a minute say this you are this story this is your story Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were your age and they were taken into captivity by a tyrant who if you didn't obey was going to kill you shame you belittle you and they said you know what God's big enough I can do it I don't know what's going to happen to me but I'm going to do it 
and they took their stand early on. Guess what? It said at the end of Daniel 1, verse 21, that Daniel served in the court of the officials until the reign of Cyrus. You know how long that was? 60 years. 60 years, Daniel, because he took a stand at that time, remained a faithful servant, honored by God in the court of his enemies. Why? Because God's a good God. He outlived three or four kings. And he continued to radiate the love of Jesus. I want to call you to not look back and to go for it in Jesus. For those of you who are not in college, maybe we've walked over some lines. And you're looking back and you're going, I have a little bit of shame. I have a little bit of guilt. God can forgive you. And God can say, let's draw the line again. You're alive, aren't you? You're not dead. And God's a God of mercy and grace. So he's saying today, let's all get on the line and say, God, I'm willing to stand for you. Can we do that? Let's ask for God's grace. If you are in that place and you're saying, I want to stand for Jesus, I want you to just come forward and I want to pray over you right now. So if that's you, we've got a bunch of gray carpet here that you can stand on or kneel on or whatever. But if you're saying, I want to be like Daniel, Meshach, Abednego, and that other guy, Shadrach, come on forward. All right, let's go for it. That's you, come forward. This isn't a show for anybody else. So don't walk if you don't want to walk. This is you and God. This is, we say at times, we get out of our seats, not because we have to, but because there's something in us that wants to make a public declaration of something God's working in our hearts. So if God's working something in your heart, kneel down before Him, call out to Him, raise your hands, say, God, I want to be like Daniel. I want to be like these young men. I want to say that it's worth standing for you. It's worth living for you. God, I need your help. God, I can't do it without you. Thank you, Jesus, that you're in me and that you will give me the help I need when I need it. He might be speaking to you things right now, places where the line is drawn. That he's saying, stand firm. Stand firm in your sexuality. Stand firm in the corruptness in your culture at work. Stand firm in the comparison among your friends. Stand firm and honor me and love me.